welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. It's good to see everybody. Like I said earlier, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. Now, if you want to know something about the character of God, your number one source is the Bible. That is where God reveals himself to us. He speaks directly to us, telling us what he wants us to know about himself. And there is a never-ending wealth of understanding God in the Bible and what he has for us. But the Bible is not the only place you can go to learn about the Lord. Did y'all know that? In Psalms, it says that the creation declares the glory of God. And, And that's very true. If you do any traveling at all and you see the beautiful things that God has created, you realize that God God is so detail-oriented that He is an artist. And and we may not realize it, but we live in such a beautiful area right here. People come here all the time and they say, this place is so gorgeous. We're a little jaded to it because we see it every day, but every once in a while I look up and I go, wow, it's so beautiful here. In America, we have a bunch of places that God had made very special, special, and they're designated as national parks. This is a place where God did something. He just really shows us His creative ability. He did something and our government has saw fit to protect that so that we can enjoy it. Maybe the most beautiful place is Yellowstone. There's a picture up here of what I'm fixing to get to. Yellowstone National Park. It's in Wyoming or mostly in Wyoming. And and Yellowstone has a lot of different things you can go see. Probably the most famous is the Old Faithful Geyser. There are hundreds of geysers there. Some of them going as high as 300 feet where water just sprouts out of the ground and and steam uh, bellows. There are snow-covered mountain peaks there. There are river valleys full of elk and bison. It is absolutely beautiful. But maybe the most unique thing and the most beautiful part of Yellowstone is something called the Grand Prismatic Spring. This is it behind us here. If you go into Yellowstone, it doesn't take you very long to get here. You drive and you park in a parking lot. And because it is very uh, dangerous, the water is very hot, the ground could crumble under you, they've built a deck all the way around it, about six foot wide, that you can walk around the Grand Prismatic Spring. Now, because this water comes out of the ground, it is thermal. You can see the steam rising off of it. This is probably in the morning. And the water has different minerals in it that make it different colors. Now, from this particular vantage point, from this particular view, you don't necessarily get a whole picture of what it looks like. When you get in your car, drive about a mile down the road, there is a obscure gravel parking lot. And if you park there, you'll walk up a little goat path to the top of the mountain. And when you get there, this is what you'll see of the Grand Prismatic Spring. This is what it looks like from above. It's absolutely gorgeous. I don't think there's very many things on earth that are as awe-inspiring as this. Now, what I want to get at here is this, is that when you look at something from a ground-level view, your picture may be incomplete. But when you get to a higher view, you can see the complete picture. We're in a series called Through the Motions, and we're looking at a conversation in Matthew between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time. And they seem to have a difference of opinions, and as I studied this week, I could really see that it comes from a different in viewpoints. The, the religious leaders have what I'm going to call this morning a ground level view or what we might call an earthly view in a church. But we're going to call it ground level view this morning. And they're arguing with Jesus who has what I would call a higher view. He, he sees the complete picture and he's going to reveal more to them. Now they don't like it and so there's quite a bit of arguing going on here. But there's a difference in what God sees and God's plans and how God views how we serve him and how sometimes we see it as humans. 
questions. As we've gone through this series, we're asking a question. Do we share the same problems that these religious leaders did? And so this morning, I want to ask you, do you walk around the world with a ground-level view, seeing only what we can see from here, or do you see through the eyes of God and what He calls us to see? Do you see from a higher view? This conversation, we're going to pick it up in chapter 22 here, Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to go uh, to verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had said, put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thine mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus has been in this discussion. They're continually asking him questions, hoping they can trip him up. And they come up with another great one. They say, Jesus, you seem to know an awful lot. Which rule is most important that we follow? Which one does God care about the most? Now, this is a, a, a hard question for Jesus. He can pick any rule and make an argument for this is the best one. But the Pharisees will immediately pick out another one that seems equally important and say, well, how is this one not just as important? They're trying to trick him up or trap him up and trap him in this. So as he does this, we realize that they kind of view rules as the better or the less, or, or the more important or the less important. Jesus comes to him, and he's going to correct that view. See, the Pharisees had over 613 rules they had derived from the Bible. Some of them were directly from the Bible, and some of them were rules that were supposed to help you uh, obey the rules of the Bible. And they had them categorized. They said, these are the more important, and these are the less important rules. These, you should follow all of them, but definitely follow these and if you don't follow these rules, it's not quite that big of a deal. And so from an earthly mindset, they thought that there was a difference in the different or a difference in rules and, and sins that um, are prescribed in the Bible. That brings us to our first take-home truth. It's this is that a ground-level view measures sins by a perceived magnitude. A ground-level view will measure sins by a perceived magnitude. Now, I'm going to ask you this question. Do we do that as Christians? Do we say that some sins are bigger than others? I'm going to answer for myself and for most of the people I'll know. I'll say that we as Christians definitely do that. We have some sins that are like our hobby horses. We ride around and say, this is a horrible thing. We can't do this. God is displeased with this. But we have other sins that we kind of like sweep under the rug and say, it's not that bad or big of a deal. It's kind of like this. RB, pull up this other picture. This is a picture of New York City, Manhattan Island, the other one. A New York City of Manhattan Island there. And, and as we look at this, you can see the different buildings. You see each of them has different magnitudes. Some of them really are tall and they really stand out and they just draw your attention. And, and some of them are, are smaller and seem insignificant. This is how we often view sins. There's, there's like a few sins that stand out to us that, that we think these are the big ones, these are the bad ones, these are the ones to, actually stay, or to obviously stay away from. But there's other things that we would call sin, we would call disobedience to God. And we would lay it aside and we'd say, oh, it's kind of like those small, unnoticeable ones. 
but this is a ground level view. If you look at this same area, pull up the next picture, RB, the same area from the ground, you notice that none of these buildings seem to stand out. The magnitude doesn't seem to matter. From the higher view, they all seem to look the same. And this is, this is much more like God's view of sin, that, that all sins tend to look the same to him. Now, I understand that this is something that maybe doesn't quite fit for us, but Jesus goes ahead and he explains. He said, all sins really come back down to the failure to follow one of two commandments, the first two commandments. He said, love the Lord God with all of your heart and then love others as you love yourself. He said, on this hangs all of the law. All of the rules really come back to one of two things. And so when we sin against God, it really comes back down to a base of breaking one of two rules. We failed to love God with all of our heart. Or we failed to love others as we love ourselves. Now, if you want to know for sure that God sees all sins the same, you can often define the severity of a crime by the severity of the punishment that comes with it, right? I'm not, a, I'm not a legal expert, Rick, but I think there's a different penalty for murder than there is speeding. Is that correct? Absolutely. So if you, if you murder someone in our law system, you're going to get life in prison or executed or something like that. You speed, you're getting a small fine. We tend to define our, 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 how bad the rules are by the severity of the punishment. And if we want to look at how God views sin, we need to look at the severity of the punishment. And the punishment for sin is the same no matter what it is. The scripture says that all sin has an equal punishment for the wages of sin is death. It doesn't say the wages of big sin is death and the wages of small sin doesn't matter. It says the wages of all sin is death. And so in God's eyes, from a higher view, all sins hold an a, um, equal punishment and an equal problem. And tells us this. Jesus tells us this in a little bit less of a story. The man who is a serial cheater on his wife, who has countless mistresses, stands on the same footing before God as the man who sits on a bench in a mall and has lustful fan fantasies about the women who walk by. Jesus taught that. He said, if you lust after a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. The murderer who goes out and kills someone because of anger in his heart stands on the same footing before God as someone who just carries hate in their heart and never uh, acts on it. The scammer who steals thousands of dollars, millions of dollars by lying to people. He shares the same level of guilt before God as the man who shows up to work late and he lies to his boss saying, I had a flat tire when the truth is he woke up late. The sins are equal. The couple that struggle, or the, the individual that struggles with same-sex attraction and acts on that stands on an equal footing before God as a man and a woman who engage in a sexual relationship before they get into the covenant of marriage. These sins are equal before God. They are all unholy to him. They all share the exact same punishment. Now, in that list, many of us, we kind of perceive a magnitude. Like the scammer is much worse than the liar. That, 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 that would seem to us to make sense. But from God's perspective, they all share the same the same problem. They all come down to the same two things. So we do share this with the Pharisees. Some sins we scream about. This is wrong. This is ruining our society. This is ruining our country. And some sins we let quietly slip into our daily lives and we ignore them. But in God's eyes, they are all as equally dangerous to us. Have you ever noticed this? 
that the sins that I have in my life are never as big as the sins that somebody else has in their life. You guys ever notice that in yourselves? Like, yeah, I have this problem with X, Y, and Z, but at least I'm not like so-and-so, or there's a bigger sin in society that is, is being very pervasive in, in our youth or in the culture, and yeah, I struggle with this little thing, but there are really big things. You ever notice that that's how we tend to look at sin? My sins are always small, and everybody else's sins are always big. Jesus himself addressed this. He, he addressed this by saying, why, when you have a plank or a log in your eye, do you look past it and notice a speck in someone else's eye? And I love how Jesus phrased that and, and the way that he goes about it because it's not so much that he's talking about you've got something wrong with you and you see something wrong with somebody else. He didn't say you've got a stain on your shirt but you notice somebody else's stain. He used specifically the eye. Why, why would he use the eye? It's because it's what we see with. And so what we see about sin in our own life is that it has to create an amount of blindness to our own sin to see other people's sins. But we tend to value, our, or we tend to look at our sin as, you know, it's not that big of a deal. We're blind to our own condition. But the sins of others, those are very, very big. But somehow, we can always be experts on the sins of others. A.W. Pink compared us to Pharisees here. He said, a Pharisee is someone who is hard on others and easy on themselves. But a spiritual man is someone who is hard on themselves and easy on others. This morning, I want to ask, which one am I? And I hope that you're asking the same question. Are we hard on ourselves and easy on others when it comes to sin? Are we easy on ourselves, excusing our sin, blind to the things that we do, while we pick some obscure sin that somebody else does, and we say, that one is the worst sin? Which, which one are we? Matt Chandler said it's an evil thing to be an expert in the weakness of your brothers and sisters. And this tells us something, that when we get to a point where we start ranking and measuring the magnitude of sin, we've missed a point. See, we as the church, we go out into the world and we have this bit of a misconception that the world needs to see sin the way that we see sin. That the things that this society says is okay and we say aren't, they need to come around to our point of view. That's not the point. The point is that we need to see sin the same way that God sees sin. And then we need to take that view to the world. That, that some things are right and some things are wrong and there is no magnitude that sin is a deadly disease in our world. See, before God, all, trans, all, trans, all transgressions are equally unholy. But this is what's important about sin. We can talk about the magnitude of sin all day, but all sin is small. Listen carefully. I don't want you to misunderstand. All sin, is, all sin is small, not compared to each other, but when you compare it to the grace of Jesus Christ. When you take any sin in this world, it doesn't matter if it's lying, it doesn't matter all that list of stuff that I put out earlier, it doesn't matter which one it is. When you set it next to the grace of Jesus Christ, that sin pales in comparison. It's so small, it's so insignificant. That's how much grace God has for us. But we have this habit sometimes of saying these are the sins that grace will cover. But those big sins, I don't know if God's grace can change that. But see, all sins are equally small before God's grace. Now here is why God tells us that all sin is equal in different ways. And why our ground level view is different. See, a higher view, this is point number two, a higher view focuses on a law of love. A higher view focuses on a law of love. Jesus Christ answers their question, which sin is greater? Which sin is worse? Which one is bigger? 
or not sin, which, which commandment is greater? Which one is bigger? Which one is more important? And he comes down and he says, it's the first of the great of the Ten Commandments, that you love the Lord God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all your mind. And he, and he goes on and says, and secondly, that you love others. And he doesn't say these are more important, the rest of them aren't important. He says all are equally important because they all fall into these two categories. If you take the Ten Commandments, those, those ten that just seems like everybody seems to know, you know, thou shalt not kill, steal, lie, all of those things. The first four of them, they come down to one core value. What is it? Do you guys know? It's loving God. And the second six of them, commandments five through ten, you know what they are? They're all about how we treat and love people. And it's interesting that as God comes through this and he's teaching us here, as Jesus is, is answering this question, he's correcting our view, everything comes down to one word. Every sin, every rule, every commandment, every failure we have, it comes down to a lack of or obedience in one word. And that word is love. We are called to a law of love for God and for others. Now, in the ancient Greek, there are several different words for love. Now, for me, I love you guys. I hope you guys know that I legitimately, legitimately love y'all. But I feel a different way about you than I do my daughter. No offense. She's, she's a little different. I, let me tell you, I love Jessica. Uh, maybe I should reverse that. I love pizza. But it's not the same kind of love that I feel for pizza. I didn't get that right. Anyway, you guys know where I'm going. There are different kinds of love we use one word for. In the ancient Greek, there are different words. There's the word phileo, and that's a brotherly love. That's the kind of love that we feel for each other when we come here, when we come to church. We, we love each other in a different way than we love our spouses or our boyfriends and girlfriends. That's eros love, the, a romantic love. But neither of those words is what's used here. When, when Jesus Christ says, love God and love your neighbor, he doesn't use brotherly love. He doesn't use romantic love. He uses the word agape. And agape has been defined so many different ways. Some people call it a godly love, and that's absolutely true. But what it really comes down to is agape, a godly love, is a sacrificial love. We are called to love in a way that causes us to sacrifice of ourselves. We're called to love God in a way that causes us to sacrifice of ourselves. We're called to love others in a way that causes us to sacrifice of ourselves. It is a sacrificial love that we must give to people. And this tells us a very important thing about love. If you remember one thing from today's sermon, I want you to remember this. Love is not an emotion. Love is an action. I've said that before, and we need to hear that. Do not claim to love people if you do not back it up with action. Nobody in this room would say, I love my children and not provide for them. Nobody in here would say, I love my spouse and never serve them. Nobody in here would say, I love you and not be willing to do something for you. Love is an action, not the feeling that we get that we describe as love. And so we are called, according to the scripture, we are called to a radical action. If we want to measure something like we measure sin, if we want to look at the magnitude of something, we don't need to look at the magnitude of the rules. We don't need to look at the magnitude of sin. We need to measure the amount of sacrificial love we have for others. Look at what God calls us to when it says this, the magnitude of our self-sacrificing for love. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. You know how you define all? 
Everything, all of you. He, he demands everything of us. A sacrifice of everything. It goes on and says, with all of your heart, which means that we are willing to sacrifice for God our desires and our wants and our feelings. We are willing to sacrifice that for him if he calls us to. He says, with all of your mind, that means our thoughts and our opinions and our reasons and our excuses, we sacrifice them for God. And with all of your soul, your soul is your very existence, your very essence. God says, I want it all. I want you to be willing to love me, to sacrifice, to work for me. And so what we're looking at when God calls us to salvation, when God calls us to be his children, is not that we walk around and saying, I love the community around us. I love the people I work with. I, I want to help people, but I just can't. I love God, but I just can't give him that one thing. What God is calling us to is a radical dedication where everything about us revolves around one thing, loving him. I want to ask us again, is this how we truly love God? Or is religion a habit for us? We, we come to church for the sake of being here. We see others and we put on, we talked about last week, putting on our, our Christian actions. Or does everything about our heart, soul, and mind come back to a radical dedication to Jesus Christ and his purpose in our lives? David Platt put it this way when talking about salvation. He said, salvation is not an invitation to pray a prayer. Salvation is a summons to lose your life. And should you follow God, should we follow God the way he calls us to, it will cause us to lose our life because we sacrifice everything about ourselves for him. It's the same thing with the magnitude of loving others. He went ahead and qualified that. He gave us a measurement. How much should you love other people? We should love other people as we love ourselves. That's a high calling. That means that I need to view you exactly with the same value as I view me. Now, I've got news for you. When it comes to food time, we may end up fighting over who gets the last chicken leg at potluck. You guys ever been in that? We, we like, uh, you know, I know somebody back there wants it, but I was in line first, so it's for me. We, we, we <laughs> that's a Baptist joke if I've ever heard one right there because we've done that, right? We don't honestly love other people as we love ourselves. I think we love people. I think we feel something for each other, but we don't love each other with a sacrificial love as a church. And we don't love the world outside with a sacrificial love as a church. It's something that God is calling us to repentance to today is that we don't value people the same as we value ourselves. See, God wants us to value people with the same level that he values people. To view people from a higher view means to view people the way that God views people. And that means that all are equal because all are precious to God. Every last person is precious to God. And it doesn't matter who they are or what they've done. We're supposed to love them all and allow him to shape our views of people. Now, normally, we tend to love people on merit, don't we? This person is more lovable because they're just nicer and easier to get along with. And so I may be more willing to love them than I will the person who yells and cusses at me or cuts me off in traffic or whatever little scrape we get into. We tend to love people who do something for me. I, I'm going to serve you because you served me one time. And so I'm willing to give of myself and sacrifice of myself for you because you did it for me. But what, what has that other person over there ever done for me? I'm not going to help them. They've never done anything for me. But that's not what God calls us to. If we love God, we love what he loves. And what God loves more than anything else in the world are human beings. It doesn't matter what category we may put them into. It doesn't matter what they may have done. God loves human beings more than anything else. And if we love God, we will too. 
that means that we will love people of all races equally. I don't get into politics up here, but I don't think you guys have missed the news lately. There's a lot of racial unrest in our society. And we as Christians are called to stay out of it. Not, not, not so much that we say so-and-so is wrong or this side is wrong. Our, our message to the world is not that I stand with white, black, Hispanic, Chinese, Asian, whatever. It's not that. Our message to the world is that God loves all people equally. I'm going to throw this out there. God loves all people equally if they break laws, if they ride, and if they protest. God loves all people equally if they have a position of authority that is abused. God loves all people equally. And when we go to the world, this is our message. Not that I'm on this side or that I'm on that side. Not me versus them. God loves all people equally, racial or not. God loves people of all political parties equally. It's an election year. Did y'all know that? Did you know that people of different political parties hate people of other political parties? If you are a Republican-minded person, you are not superior to a Democratically-minded person. And vice versa, if you are a Democratic Party-minded person, you are not superior to a Republican Party person. Both sides are precious to God. And our message is not that I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or that I hate Republicans or that I hate Democrats. My message is that I'm a follower of Christ. And all people are precious regardless of who they vote for to God. Every last one of us is precious. And so we don't get involved in the mudslinging where we call out Democrats and we don't get in the mudslinging where we call out Republicans and we don't say, I wish these people would leave the country and we don't say, I wish they'd all die. I've heard those things. All people are precious to God regardless of political party. All people are precious to God regardless of their income, regardless of what country they come from. It doesn't matter if they're from Central America, South America, the Middle East, Asia, Arkansas. All people are precious to God. And so if we truly have our hearts set on a higher view the way that God does, we will view people of all nationalities the same. Listen carefully. I don't want you to misunderstand this one. In the eyes of God, people of all religions hold the same value. I didn't say all religions are correct. I said, the people of all religions hold the same value. God does not love you any more than he loves our Muslim counterparts. I'm not saying the religion is correct. I'm not saying that, that we need to excuse their religion. But the person is who God's concerned about, not their religion. And so God loves us all equally. And God loves people of all types of failures equally. The people with the smallest sin what we might say is the smallest sin, he loves them equally with the people of the biggest sins. And the things that I've mentioned are ways that we categorize people and we say they are worthy of love or not worthy of love by the way that they act, by what they believe, by where they're from, by, by the things that they've done or they haven't done. God loves them all equally. And if God loves them and we do, that means that given an opportunity to serve and love them through action, regardless of who they are, who they vote for, what color they are, what country they live in, given an opportunity, a true follower of Christ will love and serve with an open heart because we follow the commands of God. We say to the world, we love you no matter what. See, God lives by a law of love too. 
and all the things of this world that he values most, he values us. And he could have looked at us and he could have categorized us as any particular group of people he wanted to. He could have categorized us by race. He could have categorized us by sin. He could have categorized us by our misunderstandings of the world or how we treat people. But God said, your value, listen to this, your value is greater of that than my son. And so he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross because all human life is valuable regardless of what they've done or who we may try to categorize them as. If we love God, we'll live by the law of love just as he lived for us and died for us. Now this is a hard thing for simply religious to understand. And if you go back to the scripture, you see that as Jesus has tried to put this in people again and again and again, it's about people, it's not about rules, it's about loving God, it's about God's love for us, not which rules are more or greater. You see the religious elite, the Pharisees in this case, they reject it. They say, you know, that just doesn't sound right. There's got to be rules, there's got to be things that are, are higher or lower. And so Jesus turns the table on them. They've been asking Jesus these different questions and trying to trap him up, and, and Jesus handles it masterfully. He never gets trapped up. He never is tied down, but he turns the tables. He says, okay, it's my turn. Let me ask you a question. So let's read here in verse 41. He says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doeth, uh, doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies a footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. So Jesus comes to these Pharisees, these religiously trained people. He said, okay, here's my question. He said, there's a Messiah coming. It's in scripture, right? And they said, yes, there is a Messiah coming. He said, where does he come from? Pharisees said, he, he's going to be the son of David. Now, that doesn't mean a literal son. That means he's going to be in the lineage of David. David is a major figure in Judaism. You've heard of David, a little shepherd boy who takes on a giant that scares complete armies, takes him on with a slingshot and wins. David, who his, the Bible tells us that he was a man after God's own heart, the second king of Israel. David is loved by the Jews. And they know that the Messiah will come out of his lineage, that they will be there together. Or that, the, uh, that when the Messiah comes, to come out of his lineage. And they say, he, okay, he's going to be the son of David. And Jesus asks him this question. He says, if he's the son of David, if he's coming out of the lineage of David, why does David show him the respect of calling him Lord? What could that mean about this man that's coming out of the lineage of David when David calls him Lord? I love the way that the author here, the way that Matthew ended this. He said, nobody could answer that question. And then my favorite part of the whole scripture right here, and they quit asking him questions from that day forward. They didn't try any more dumb questions with Jesus Christ. But, but here is what we learn from this. And here is what they should have learned. That if David calls this Messiah Lord, that he cannot, he cannot be just a man. That if Lord calls the Messiah Lord, or if David calls the Messiah Lord, that the Messiah must be God in human form. That brings us to our last point this morning. A ground level view sees God as distant, but a higher view reveals that he is present. See, the Pharisees, they had this view of this coming Messiah. He was going to be a political leader. He was going to come out of the lineage of David, of the greatest king that ever walked the earth. And so he was going to be royalty, and he was going to be a king. He was going to be a political leader. He was going to save them from the invasion of Rome. But that was a ground level view. 
And Jesus Christ, with his higher level view, he tries to reveal to them that this Messiah is going to come on a law of love. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah, and each one of them point to one man named Jesus Christ who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Every single one of them point to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ walked this earth, not because he was a distant God, which is what a lot of earthly people think, a distant God that doesn't care about us, some, some being out in the universe somewhere who exists. Jesus Christ came here to be present with us. You want to talk about loving someone as you love yourself. You want to talk about sacrificial love. God became man, not so that he could have a great life, so that he could have a horrible life, so that he could experience the pain that we feel, and so that he could take our punishment for the sake of being, or for the sake of us coming to know him. A ground level view also says, I'm not that bad. I don't need a God. I don't need a Lord. But a higher reveal, or a higher truth, a higher view reveals this truth to us. That all men stand on the same footing before God. If I could have the musicians, please. All men stand on the same footing before God. That all of our sins, small or big, make us equal before God. It makes us unholy. And he provided Jesus Christ, his son, to die and take the punishment because he loved human humans so much. He loved my, mankind so much. So when I ask you this morning, have you accepted the gift that he gave us? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Repented not just of the big sins, not the visible sins, but said, God, I will follow you and I will get rid of these small sins in my life. Have you come to know him as your Savior? And if you haven't, I'd love to invite you to do that. Now.